Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name's James, one of the founders of HS, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Vincent Grasso, who is a surgeon, a software architect, and a medical informaticist. So he's currently global practice lead for a big tech company called IPsoft, um, where he does lots of cool things that I'll let him explain on the podcast. But Vincent's got a load of other stuff that he does and a really interesting background that we go into on the podcast. So clinically, Vincent did his surgical residency at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in the Manhattan program. And he also did a fellowship at Yale, where... For two years, he worked with NASA on something called extreme telemedicine, um, which, bearing in mind this was in the 90s, he was effectively putting an emergency room at the base camp of Everest by beaming back telemedicine signals. So he was really kind of pioneering that field. Um, And on the podcast, you'll hear us talk about um, how he's seen that hype curve go right from the very beginning all the way until now, and he's kind of lived that in real time. So other things that Vincent's done, he's previously built his own EMR, which was way before you'd expect um, anyone to even be talking about EMRs. He's built startups. He's been mentored by a Wall Street legend, um, the guy who built the second hedge fund in the US. And he's incredibly passionate about solving the opioid crisis with technology. Um, So we talk about all these different things. We even add in a bit of adoption in tech as usual, um, about educating clinicians in tech and business as a means of improving that adoption. So we cover loads of stuff. Um, As I say, Vincent's a really interesting guy. And for anybody interested in speaking to Vincent or exploring a few of the things that he does or learning from him, then he does talk about how you can get in touch with him at the end, which I certainly recommend you doing. As always, you can get in touch with us um, on Twitter at HSVenture, on Instagram at HS.Ventures, um, on LinkedIn, which is HS, and then you put a, a dot afterwards. Um, and yeah, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Um, feel free to ping in any questions you've got. Um, and yeah, look forward to hearing from you all soon. Enjoy the podcast. So yeah, so Vincent, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing uh, very well. Thanks, James. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you. And thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. Awesome. Whereabouts are you based again, Vincent? Um, I'm speaking to you from our, um, our corporate headquarters for the company I'm at, IPsoft, at, uh, in Manhattan. We're at the tip of the island of, uh, of Manhattan, right across the street from the Staten Island Ferry and the Statue of Liberty looking at the, uh, the, the bay. It's a, a very nice visual today. The, the weather. Oh, very nice. Lovely. Um, cool. So Vincent, um, for the benefit of our listeners, I know that we've had a quick chat before and um, I know a little bit about your background and actually, obviously I, I put a quote from yourself into my last Forbes article. Um, so for our listeners, feel free to check that out um, on the opioid crisis, but that's a bit of a giveaway to Vincent's background. So over to you, Vincent, why don't you tell us your story? Great. Th- and, and thank you. Um, you know, I have a, a, a kind of unique background. Uh, my journey has been a mixed one involving uh, technology and healthcare. Um, you know, a while back, I started actually in IT. So I was a, a aspiring electrical engineer and 
a guy that was very heavy into the uh, the IT side, and you know, in, in my younger days. Uh, interestingly, in my family, you're 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 allowed to kind of become a physician, an engineer, or a priest. So I started down a, an electrical engineering pathway, but my uncle is a surgeon, and other family members are physicians, and I kind of got bounced out of the engineering track into the uh, the pre medical track. So I uh, wound up, um, you know, training as a physician and actually as a surgeon, and I had the, the, the great privilege of training here in New York City within the Mount Sinai program and uh, did a fellowship at uh, Yale University in, in advanced laparoscopic surgery. So I was really pretty heavy, heavy trained in, um, in um, you know, advanced surgical uh, techniques and procedures. Um, but I had the, you know, the very interesting part of my, uh, my journey was during my two years at Yale, uh, we had a NASA commercial space center that was uh, at Yale University in the late 90s. And uh, it was a large grant from NASA to have the Yale University medical team uh, head up, being headed up by a, a very well-known Army Colonel Surgeon, Rick Satava, who was a DARPA project manager for the Defense Science Office. And we were looking at exotic technologies that were slated for the International Space Station and seeing how we could, in, in fact, take that exotic layer of technology and see if we could actually bring it down into, you know, the everyday use of, of uh, patients here in a, in a terrestrial manner. So I was a pro, NASA project manager and a developer of some interesting, um, um, so I guess, some interesting um, spins on delivering healthcare in extreme environments. Um, I created the concept of extreme telemedicine. And we did a proof of concept project to Mount Everest, believe it or not, James, in uh, the late 90s with uh, the MIT folks and the Boston Science Museum and a whole bunch of vendors and built a, a, an emergency room essentially at base camp Mount Everest and used a lot of very sophisticated um, digital technology, digital spirometers, uh, EEGs, halter monitors, all, all the stuff that we take for granted now um, that we had actually you know, on our Sherpas and climbers and use the MRSAT satellites over the Indian Ocean to transmit data back to Yale and to Walter Reed Hospital. And it was kind of a big deal. The whole premise of it was, you know, to show that we could actually take care of people that were, you know, mimicking an extreme environment. Um, you, know, uh, you know, an elderly woman two blocks from our hospital that was going into atrial fibrillation. You know, if, you don't, if you're not aware that she's in atrial fibrillation and she can't call, you know, 911, it's just the same as essentially being 20,000 miles away or, or you know, in, in another extreme uh, situation. So we, uh, we did that as a proof of concept and um, I, I finished my fellowship uh, at Yale and then started a surgical practice in New Jersey and uh, you know, grew it up to a pretty interesting size, designed my own information systems to do all my billing and essentially a very boutique exotic EMR and uh, ran that for a, a bunch of years and uh, started moving into the business side of the equation rather than just the pure clinical side. And um, wound up meeting some interesting investment bankers and private equity guys and leveraged buyout guys in New York and started to transition into the business side of the equation. So I was very heavy in the clinical technology side and got intrigued with the, the business side of the equation. And from about 2007 to you know, about two years ago, um, while maintaining an active license from a, a concierge perspective for friends and family, I, um, I, I went headway into the business side of the equation and 
had some interesting roles at Panasonic and a bunch of public companies offshore and um, got my sea legs, so to speak. Uh, as you know, in the business community, physicians really are not viewed as business savvy. We're not trained formally in business per se. Um, so I did formalize my, my business uh, skill set with an MBA in finance from University of Massachusetts Amherst and a, a master's in information systems to get my you know, technology creds from uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology here in Jersey. So I, I um, you know, I tooled up on the business side of the equation and, um, you know, used those 10 years to gain credibility and insights into actually, the, you know, the, the delivery side of the equation rather than the clinical delivery side, the business delivery side. And that's what brought me, in fact, to, uh, to IPsoft, where, where I am now. And um, currently I'm the global practice lead for IPsoft, which is a very interesting private AI company. And I've been entrusted with um, seeing how our assets, our conversational AI assets, our RPA assets, can be brought into the delivery side of the equation. Um, you know, and on the healthcare, on the healthcare side, from a clinical perspective, you know, on the business side, how it can, uh, you know, augment and assist on the technical implementation side. So I, I found myself in a in an environment that allows me to you know, wear three hats. And uh, th that's always fun to, uh, you know, explore how you can solve problems in that, in that space. So that's, that's what, uh, that's where we are now, um, you know, and, and I'm actively back in clinical practice, two days a week in a, a clinic in Newark, New Jersey, a multi-specialty clinic. We have a, a wide patient uh, mix, pa Medicaid patients, Medicare patients, some self-insured, some, some commercial and, um, you know, we're delivering very interesting and quality care to a, a difficult cohort and um, seeing how uh, our assets and AI in general can really be uh, introduced safely and efficiently into that whole ecosystem. So that's uh, that's that's what I that's how I spend my week, you know, developing very cool. it. Very cool. We, we've got a lot to talk about already. Um, <laughs> I, I'm struggling to know where to start here, actually, but I'm going to take us back to when you did your Yale fellowship, because that sounds so incredibly interesting. I mean, you, you dropped in a, a few incredible nuggets there that you your your title was a NASA project manager that you were doing this version of extreme telemedicine obviously to the space station and and to um putting a essentially an emergency room at a base camp of Everest so what what led you to doing that in the first place this fellowship you can tell from your career obviously you're a doctor that thinks differently that that you know the similar to lots of people that, are, that listen to this podcast that have, that have been in touch you know people that are not happy just doing this clinical they want to do other things but it seems like such an interesting fellowship to have done and and to have got all that experience you did i mean just talk me through even thinking of applying for it and 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 a bit more detail about um yeah, when you started there and, and how you went through that fellowship doing those things. Sure. No, th and thanks for bringing that up. When I was in my last year of training in New York City at uh, one of the Mount Sinai affiliates, um, laparoscopic surgery was just coming of age. And uh, I, I had a, a natural facility to operate with both hands, which is you know not too common and um, lent itself very well to laparoscopic surgery. And Yale University had a center of excellence uh, for laparoscopic surgical training, headed up by a, a visionary surgeon, Butch Rosser. And in my last year of my, you know, my chief residency year as a general surgeon, I went up and met with Butch and, and uh, 
he invited me to join uh, his team uh, to partake in an advanced minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery fellowship. So I went up to Yale with the intent of just doing, you know, a fellowship in, 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 this, new, in this new discipline. But while I was there, uh, I became aware that there was actually a, a newly created NASA Yale Commercial Space Center. And around the country, there were NASA Commercial Space Centers that had different focus. Um, the Stennis Space Center had a, had a focus, and the Yale University one was on medical devices, and, and uh, it was integrated with the Department of Surgery. Um, I had a lot of experience in international healthcare. I have a not-for-profit that was very busy during that time, and I was actually going around to different countries doing, I guess you would call it missionary surgery with uh, the Jesuit Refugee Services. So I had an interesting, um, I think, an understanding of, um, you know, healthcare within different markets and, and the complexities thereof. And when I was at Yale, I met a very interesting guy by the name of Jim Bruton, who was a visionary um, multimedia telco guy. And he had just come back from Mount Everest from a 1997 expedition. And during that expedition, Jim and his team were the first people to, to, to transmit live video from the summit of Everest, actually back to the King of Malaysia, who was one of the sponsors of, of that expedition. Wow. And when I met Jim and he explained how he did that, uh, he set up 2.4 gigahertz repeaters along, you know, along the mountain and was moving uh, data around and then up through Imarsat. Um, we brainstormed and I, you know, I said, Jim, I, I do, you know, international healthcare work. How about we do a kind of medical mission to Kathmandu in the charity hospital? And then I'll take all that technology and we'll do the same thing at Everest Base Camp. And uh, so that, that's what launched this concept of extreme telemedicine. And I presented it then to our, my boss uh, to be Rick Sataba, who was very intrigued with, you know, this is a pretty interesting thing to bring digital technologies and people and stitch everything together. Uh, so that, that was the genesis of the, the, you know, how it happened. My overarching uh, desire, which got lost in the, the grandeur of the project is picked up by lots of, Media outlets. We were live on the Today Show, live from Mount Everest at, at 128k, which is hard to believe. Wow. But original intent was to was just to prove that the technology and the network were available at that time to, in fact, take care of Grandma two blocks from our hospital when she goes into atrial fibrillation. That we the technology was available to pick that up and then kind of miraculously show up at the door and say, you know, we're here to help you. Um, unfortunately, that message was uh, was not really. Uh, it was overshadowed by the the you know the, the sexiness of the expedition, mm. everything around it. But here we are again. I'm doing the same things, kind of you know, 20 years later, and uh, you know the timing is right for that stuff now. But that that was the genesis of the uh, the expedition. So when did you say that was? 1998. Wow. So I guess you, you, it sounds like then you were pioneering what is now very obviously known as telemedicine so that's just simple notion that you can jump on a video call with a physician in a clinic or somewhere that you know in the 90s that you were doing this and yeah with this i guess amazing i don't even know what you'd call it a stretch goal or something that you've just done it from everest and then said yeah why can't we do the elderly people down the road fascinating yeah the the the, um you know telemedicine has had such a strange uh history just in the in, in defining what it was what it is i had created a definition a long time ago i treated it as a, a kind of you know a solution so 
the solution that that's created when patients and providers are separated by a distance. So however you solve that equation, you know, that's, that's really telemedicine in some degree. If it's a video hookup, it's a, it's a video exchange. If it's just by audio, if you're transmitting data back and forth. So it was kind of, you know, I left it a little open-ended, but it was, um, you know, that was kind of what allowed me then to stitch together all the components and elements that would solve that problem. There's people at Mount Everest that are sick and they're my, my doctors are at Yale New Haven Hospital. How do I make the marriage? What has to happen in between? And uh, that whole concoction of uh, network and hardware and software and telco uh, was the solution. And it actually it worked really, really well at shockingly low balance. <laughs> Surprised at uh, how much data was moved at 128K. We had 264K ISDN channels, B terminals that were muxed and uplinked. And we were doing live video picture in picture, audio, biometrics telemetry live it was it was shockingly and you know exciting um you know at 128k so that's wow so when you're so when you're doing that then are you then thinking how do i then bring this back and distribute it to the masses are you thinking that immediately afterwards was that something that you worked on um yeah tell me about when you came back and, and tried to develop it further so when i came back i um when i left the fellowship I started a, a surgical practice in where, you know, where I was from in Northern New Jersey. And I had brought on board some very, uh, very skilled developers that I had met through my, my Yale days. And I actually built a, a end-to-end DMR in .NET 1.0. So this is, <laughs> and wow. it ran my surgical practice. It did billing. I was using NLP to take my medical dictations that came out of an IBM speech server and using NLP, generating claim forms on the fly and, and, and then transmitting into payers. And we were doing a lot of very interesting stuff in a purely web-based platform. So I had, my server was hosted in my office. I had a business class DSL line with a static IP address. And I had a, a web front end on it. And I was going to my hospitals and logging into my network and, and doing business. And I realized uh, in fact, I had, I think, the first messaging app on a pocket PC and the, the Microsoft early pocket PC to do text messaging to my cohorts. And um, I realized that I could never commercialize it because the doctors that I knew, hardly any of them had their offices networked. They didn't mm-hmm. have access. So how do you commercialize a web-based platform in, in 98 and 99 and 2000? Not, not too easy. Uh, so that was part of the naive side of not understanding market entry and I was building things solving problems but couldn't really commercialize them I wasn't astute enough to just peel off the billing solution and forming a surgical billing company like my dad said I should but I was more intrigued with building and and, and designing so that was uh, you know we were really early with some very interesting solutions so that's then what set you on the journey to learn business from the sounds of things. Right. And that's when you've gone and, you know, got worked at Panasonic and a few other places you've done the MBA and the MA in information systems and things. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I, I realized that um, I had uh, a deep understanding of, you know, the tech, the technology stack required to, to do things, whether it's gather data, push data, transmit, what have you. I had good clinical understanding from a lot of training and I was missing the business side of the equation. 
I, I really, I mean, I, I had, you know, frankly, I don't think I had an economics course in college. I didn't, I didn't have business courses. I didn't have finance courses. Um, shocking that you could go through all this training and not really have a, a primer in business, but that's what, you know, healthcare does. Uh, so I, I um, you know, was, was very fortunate to kind of get adopted by uh, Tony Forsman, who was a, you know, visionary Wall Street legend, um, second hedge fund in the country, founder of uh, Forsman and Little, Leverage Biofirm in New York. And he kind of adopted me in a way and had mercy on me. And I got to see how um, a business mind of that caliber thinks and solves problems. And I think one of the things I learned from him, and we're still friends working today on projects, was the understanding that business is demand. Business is not sales per se, it's demand. If there's no demand, there's no sales. And to start looking at um, opportunities from within the lens of, uh, of demand and being able to really articulate and understand it at a, at a low level. Um, and, you know, having him as a mentor was helpful. And then I realized that I needed to pick up uh, business insights from different, different parts of the vertical. So at Panasonic, I was a senior healthcare advisor to the CTO. And I, I learned how a big, you know, a big entity, a big public entity, you know, consumer electronics entity does business, you know, the complexities of playing with the giants. Um, I, I worked in the C-suite of hospital systems and got to play and learn and bring value to, to that layer. So each place I landed, I, I, I tooled up on a, a piece of the equation I was deficient in, at least I thought I was deficient in. And, um, you know, it took, it took a while, right? It takes a while to go in and out and not be perceived as a schizophrenic business guy. <laughs> Why do you have so many things in your resume that looks like it's scattered? But it was all highly um, orchestrated. And, and, and it took 10 years to actually put the mosaic together to make it look like something interesting. So that's a madness. Yeah, I, f- I find that really interesting because on my journey, I've done similar things in this. You described it very well. There are sort of a mosaic of, of your career that you're piecing together these, these individual bits. And you're absolutely right that when other people look in, they might just think, you know, someone might look at my LinkedIn profile and just think, what on earth is he doing between this and this? And it's like, well, actually I was doing things that I enjoyed doing. I was following what I thought were problems to solve and I was developing my own skill set. So I, yes, I did end up taking various different jobs. I had a commercial role at the, at the British Medical Journal. I worked in policy at NHS England and health education, all these, all these different bits that I just fit, fit together into what is now, you know, expertise that allows me to do what I do now. And it seems like the same for you, you know, not only were you piecing these things together in order to do what you think is right for your career, you're actually just doing them because you enjoyed doing them and that you were finding these interesting problems to solve. And yeah, you, you were just enjoying the journey. Yeah, I guess like you, like you, James, I'm, I'm curious by nature, right? So curious yeah. people are never really bored. And um, uh, if you enjoy what you're doing, I think at the, at the, uh, the highest level, I enjoy helping people. So if I enjoy helping people and I'm a clinician, the, the more things that I learn that, that allow me to take better care of you as my patient, then it's not work. It's all part of, you know, enjoying what you do, do it better. Uh, the outcomes are better. Everyone's happy. That's kind of not a bad place to be. So um, there's uh, a lot of uh, enrichment, especially what we're fortunate as physicians that, you know, I, was, I, I didn't understand until recently the difference between a healer 
and a physician, right? A healer is a broader, you know, a, a broader title. I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice label for someone to say you're a healer. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's much more, I think, complimentary, but it requires you to have, I think, a bigger toolbox, a uh, wider toolbox, and to use those tools in, you know, innovative ways. Yeah. Then it's been fun. And I think as well, one of the most important tools in that box that you mentioned there was that you had, you know, a Wall Street legend of a mentor, you know, second hedge fund in the country and all these different things. Now, I can appreciate that not everybody is going to have access to those sorts of people. But, you know, you've put your you've you put yourself in the right place at the right time to find someone like that. And you've taken full advantage and you've, you know, grabbed that person and just said, I know I can learn from you. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to work with you. I'm, I'm going to help you and all those different things. And that's really seemingly propelled you and your knowledge even further with and i just think mentorship is such a huge part and a huge part of um really adding to your own skill set and developing as a as, as a person professionally you know personally i think it's so important so yeah i guess a lesson for those people listening that the entrepreneurs listening that mentors can play such a huge role um and yeah what what did you learn from your mentor then you know i i, I learned um you know tony's a an interesting uh, person with a, 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 a very active mind. Um, I learned to step back and look at things from a much higher level of resolution, at a, from a macro perspective. You know, the, what, what are the moving parts at the high level macro view before you start playing around in the weeds? Really step back. And, and you know, that's not easy to do unless you have um, you know, kind of training in, in that way to, 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 to explore and analyze things. Uh, that was very interesting. The other thing that I learned from Tony and his brother, Teddy, who died, unfortunately, um, a while back, was the concept of, of real value and perceived value. I had, I had never really, in all my years, gone through an exercise to articulate what, what perceived value is or what real value is, you know, from a financing perspective, from an investment banking perspective, you know, the, the multiple that's attached to a stock price is that in, in the future, it'll be worth more. There's a perception of value enhancement that the capital brings and you pay more for a stock based on your, on this perception of perceived value moving forward. Um, I never really understood how, how that, um, you know, how to articulate that and how to understand it and use it as I articulated the startups that we were building, how, how do I explain something from that perspective to a potential investor, to a potential strategic partner, to a, a potential employee? How do you really do that? And what, I, and what it came down to was a very simple formula that, that uh, worked its way out was, and I think you'll find this interesting, and there's lots of value equations, but this is one of the more interesting ones. You know, value is a function of of validity, relevance, and labor. High value is high relevance, high validity, and a decrease in labor, right? The, the, the numerator and the, the denominator of labor is interesting. So what I, what I learned from them was to put into that formula a lot of the things that I've been working on. And if it doesn't make sense in that simple formula, you're off. And um, it's, it's been very useful to me and uh, so I do owe them that gratitude of being able to understand, um, you know, value from a different perspective. So I really like that 
because it quite neatly sums up one of my frustrations that I had when I was a practicing clinician and I was trying to innovate as a clinician and I was watching other people do projects and they were teaching me to, to do these projects, these you know quality improvement projects, we call them in the UK. So projects that would improve an element of the um, clinical environment. And it seemed to me that every single time that someone would suggest an improvement, it would end up in more work. So in your equation, it might be valid, it might be relevant, but it's actually an increase in labor. And every single time, I mean, the, the, the laughable thing was, you know, when I was training and watching these projects was that it was just another checklist. It was another piece of paper. It was based to say it was, you know, it's more eyes off patients and more eyes on paperwork. And it was just a repetitive situation that in order to add these layers of safety and layers of improved quality, the easiest thing to do was to just get people to do a bit more work. And that just frustrated me so much, which seemingly for you as well, it's led you into tech because actually tech can really be the answer to that decreasing labor whilst increasing the validity, whilst increasing the relevance. And so talk to me about that journey then. So you mentioned just briefly there, the startups that you were building and you know, our, the, the bulk of our audience here will be really fascinated to hear more about this. So tell me about some of the, the startups that you're building and, and how the technology is decreasing that labor whilst increasing those other two factors. You know, it's, um, I'm glad you brought that up because what I was so intrigued about coming to IPsoft when I came actually at IPsoft to license the assets for two of my startups. I didn't come here looking for a job. <laughs> and <laughs> Interesting. I met Chayton, who's a visionary uh, CEO and a gentleman by the Chris Reardon, our UI UX lead and Jonathan Crane, our COO. You know, these are serious, smart guys, business savvy, passion and, and, and understand complexity. And uh, after a bunch of meetings, they asked me to come inside rather than stay on the outside and be entrepreneurial from the inside, which was kind of fun. And what I, what I learned was, and you hit it right on the head, from that equation, um, we, we, can just, we can just pick, for example, yesterday I, in my clinic, I saw about 25 patients. And I've been doing time and motion studies on, on the patients and, and the activities that I have to do when I see them. I have to get some information, I have to look things up, I'm, I'm breaking them up into these categories. And I spend a portion of that time actually using a, a lot of my training to solve a problem, to, you know, to, to be, play doctor rather than play data acquisition guy. And um, what, I, what I'm really fascinated about are uh, conversational AI in general, especially our product Amelia, is that I'm designing use cases that are integrated and result in the decrease of labor for members of our staff incrementally, not replacing somebody. But if I can shave two or three minutes off of my 20 minute visit with a patient where a digital labor assistant could have done something for me that really shouldn't be done by the folks up in the front office, I, you know, from a, a, an equation perspective, I, I have decreased the cost of labor to do that two minute exercise and, and that transports over into overall value generation for that 20-minute experience. So the, the digital labor workforce um, that's, that's evolving, right, that we're all working, working on and evolving, brings incremental value and in, in fractions to a complex series of tasks vis-a-vis -vis seeing patients, the workflow involved. And um, that's a fascinating exercise. I'm, I'm not seeing that in the literature yet. Um, it's, it's intriguing and, um, you know, I'm, li I'm living in the living laboratory of our clinic and, and seeing where these, these, 
these uh, capabilities, these abilities and capabilities can really bring value. So that's, uh, that's part of the fun of what we're doing. Mm. So when you say that you're building these startups, are you building technology for your own clinic or are you actually, are you angel investing in companies? What does that actually look like when you say that you're building startups? So I, what, I, what I do is I, um, um, I, I see a need and I'm able to uh, you know, explore um, you know, the business rationale around it and design a technology solution to solve that problem. So one of one of the startups that that are, that are mine that's you know it's it's my asset uh, involves um, doing f- physical therapy at home through the use of some innovative technologies, um, m- motion engines and you know various uh, accoutrements to detect accurately motion of patients through physical therapy, and the ability to inject into that technology stack AI whether it's RPA conversational machine learning. Um, allows you to do uh, different things at, at cost X. So the what, what, what's exciting about I think entrepreneurship today and you know 2019 moving forward is that there's this whole whole new layer in the technology stack that I call AI, which is a a box that has you know RPA, it has machine learning, it has conversational um, uh, AI like Amelia, other other types of products in there, and and the folks that can wield that that can use that new tool set. Uh, will bring value to their startups, especially if there's workflow involved and process involved and, and the need to engage with a customer. It's a whole new wide open space. And um, so that's, that's the space I'm in and creating new, new ventures that inject uh, AI into them where appropriate to, uh, to enhance their value. I see. So that's why you turned up at the door of IPSoft because you actually yeah. had a you were you were there for a licensing conversation with a couple Correct. of these new ventures slash assets that you're building, right? Yes, that was that was the original call. And since I've been in here now, um, you know, naturally, you know, I see a lot of um, you know places where this technology brings value. But but they they bring value when they're part of solutions, when they're part of things. It's you know RPA out of the box doesn't do anything until you you integrate it into process. And, you know, so that's why it's really exciting is, you know, guys like us that understand the, that, that enjoy playing in the business, the IT and the clinical side of the equation. It's now like you're a kid in a candy store where you get to, you know, get these new tools that you didn't have before to uh, solve these complex problems. And it's addictive when you start solving problems. Well, that's, you know, I'm, 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 I, I have been, uh, I guess, you know, I guess criticized would be fair in some instances where, you know, you're excited to do things and you have to stop, right? So the, the smart investors like, look, Vincent, you're, you're a little bit all over the place. You know, you got four things going on that are interesting <laughs> on this one, right? So that's, that's part of the discipline. So t- yeah, so tell me, tell me more about IPSoft then. So tell me, how did that conversation go when it, how it went from licensing to you taking up a role there? Tell me what your role is. Tell me what the company does, sure. why it's so exciting to be there right now. You know, we're, we're a 20-year-old company that has a, a global footprint um, founded by Chaitan Dubey, our CEO, who, um, you know, years ago was a, a mathematician at, at uh, one of the local universities at NYU here in New York and started the company with an understanding of automating processes on and network management, et cetera. So he had a, he had an ability to, to see demand for um, creating 
um, an, an environment to help automate and streamline the management of networks, et cetera. And you know, founded the company, launched it. It was very successful. It's been very successful and it, it has penetrated a lot of the banking and insurance verticals you know, very well. And, and think of it kind of, you know, we're clinicians. So think of the autonomic nervous system that we have in our bodies. And then we have this conversational front end piece, the forebrain that lets us, lets us talk right now. Um, when, when you're asleep or if you're under anesthesia, your body still works. It's still doing things. That's the autonomic back end. But there's a conversational front end to it. And, and Chayton had the vision of saying, you know, I've got this back end thing working really interestingly, but I'd like to put a conversational piece on top of it so that people that use it would be able to use voice and basic natural language to, to, to execute, so to speak. So when I, when I came in and uh, met, met them to license Amelia for my physical therapy startup, I, I began to realize that uh, Chayton had a very deep understanding of of, of multidimensionality, of, of volumetric thinking. And, I, and, I, and I've spoken with him about this, this volumetric thinking concept of multi-domain uh, understandings of how you solve problems when, you, when you're forced to be in a, in a multi-domain environment like, like healthcare, clinical, technical, and business. There's a triad. And, and if you don't really understand how the three play together, you wind up doing these little, little Band-Aid fixes and you don't solve the big problems. So he had a great understanding of that volumetric uh, dimension to problem solving and where technology fit in. And that attracted me to really come inside and uh, meet the rest of the folks. So the, the company has um, some interesting assets. We have a very interesting uh, RPA product. We have conversational AI through Amelia. And then we have a, a very interesting evolution of the, of the original product uh, now called One, One Desk. And um, these, these three environments are integrated or they can operate separately, but they do lend themselves to bringing a lot of value to this new layer, this new part of the technology stack that I, I loosely call the AI layer. Um, and uh, it's, it's nice to be on the inside where you get to see this stuff and know how to you know, utilize it. So that's what really attracted me to come inside and, and you know, work, work with the tool from within rather than just strictly licensing it and going away. Mm-hmm. Which makes a lot of sense. And as you say, it helps you solve big problems. Um, and I guess talking of one such big problem, I know that you and I have spoken about this on a, on a previous call, is how technology in, in healthcare, and particularly the things that you're doing with um, you know, the conversational stuff and machine learning and deep learning, all these different things, is the, is the opioid epidemic, because that's what we've spoken about. So it's, a, it's obviously a huge issue. 130 people are, are a day are dying um in the u.s because of it it's huge economic burden nearly 80 billion dollars a year it's a huge problem to go after and i know that you've got some interesting thoughts as to how this can actually happen through technology and and how it can improve through technology so do you want to talk to me about where your passion came from for this and and what your thinking is along those lines sure no and and thanks for bringing that up um you know, we're all aware of the, uh, the crisis and it's, it's not going away anytime soon. Um, I, I see uh, patients suffering in my, in my private practice, right? We have, a, we, have a, um, we have a clinic. There are people that are suffering in pain from whether it's osteoarthritis, car accidents, back surgeries, all sorts of things. And 
the, the pain is genuine in most cases, and they, they are introduced to the analgesic space through a, a wide range of medications, right? Motrins and Tylenols and eventually graduating up into Percocets and things. And what, what's really very difficult is to, uh, A, how do you, once you're on something for a while like that, it is, you know, there's some, there's a, it's addictive and you're accustomed to it. But as a physician, the only time I get to really talk to you about, you know, your pain and the, how, you're, how you're dealing with it is when you're in the office. So I, I have a certain amount of time. I ask you some questions. I, I say, please try to take less Percocets. They go, okay, and they go home. And what's really frustrating is that I, I have no access to what's happening to you at home. Much like a patient that's hypertensive, you really only see their blood pressure once they bring a log. They come into the office, you see their blood pressure. You don't know what the blood pressure was for the month before they were at home, and you're trying to make adjustments on one data point. So what I, what I was intrigued with, um, uh, A, there's demand for, as we you know, spoke before, people are suffering, and I don't know really any of my patients that prefer being on narcotics if they don't have to be. That goes without saying. Um, but the role of conversational AI and being able to interact with these patients while they're at home or, or in other locations allows me to get a richer uh, environment of data to help me better understand what's going on in their world outside the office and how to then fine tune what I would call, you know, the, the pain management mechanisms that are required to, to gradually move them from drug X to Y to dose Z and introduce other um, tools and techniques to help them, you know, alleviate this addiction. And un until you, un unless you have unli unlimited sources of capital to go have human beings running around and, trying to engage with these people. I don't see any other reliable way consistent in a, like a 24 seven environment than a, than a digital labor force. That is orchestrated by physicians and the caregivers, not that they're rogue, but, and, uh, but they can be very helpful in helping get the data that we need to, to help adjust the, the pain management, uh, you know, treatment protocols that are, that are ongoing. So that's, that's very exciting. So what tech is out there at the moment? I know, I know there's, a, there's a few programs going on with, um, with telemedicine that we've already talked about on the podcast and a few other different bits and bobs. There's the medical devices and things like that. But where, where do you see the majority of the help coming from? Is this something that can be solved through technology in a relatively superficial way? Or I, I'm more assuming this is a much deeper problem that needs a complex array of different things. But I, I'm particularly interested in how technology you think can help? So I'm, I'm like you, Jim. I'm a, I'm a platform, you know, person by nature. And what I what I what I like is there. You you have to be able to pull the right tool uh, at the right time. So there's a role for what I would call data acquisition from a sensor perspective um, that a, that graduates into a device. So there, there's a need for that. There there's a need for the conversational piece that allows you to get questions and answers back and forth in a timely manner for, for to, to, to being part of that experience. I'll give you a, a very, you know, yesterday I had a patient that had uh, upper shoulder, you know, posterior shoulder back pain. And uh, she was on a bus and had her arm back or, you know, what have you. And, and what she wound up having was uh, she had a sprain, a muscular, muscular sprain 
um, that had I not injected some lidocaine into it in a trigger point to see if the pain was relieved, had I not done that, it would have been very easy to um, you know, give her pain medication because she was in pain. But by doing that, I was able to cool things down, put her in a kind of an arm splint, and she felt better for that, you know, cool down period. What I'm getting at is, you know, there are algorithms that we're not really um, perhaps following fully that allows us to, you know, engage in whether it's an acute injury or a chronic injury and what device would bring value in monitoring range of motion. Uh, how does the conversational piece fly in? the RPA in this to track process, you know, it's, it's this kind of new, new uh, special sauce that gets woven into the recipe. And um, I think there's room for all of these things, but it needs to be orchestrated by folks like us that, you know, can kind of understand, you know, the, the complexity of the problem. Um, and then really empowering the people on the front lines that are you know, that are really all in to try to help these people, the social workers and all these upfront folks. Um, mm. they're, there's a, they're, they're screaming for assistance, simple assistance, not necessarily exotica. And I think that brings us quite neatly, almost back full circle to something that we talked about quite near the beginning, which was that, you know, you and I, we understand the health, we understand the business, we understand the technology, but that is rare. And where you've got practicing physicians that you know don't have that understanding of all these different worlds and, and nor do they potentially have a what a, a system-wide view of the problem then it, it might be easier to just prescribe opioids it might be easier at, on a personal level to get the patient out of the room it might be easier for their clinic and their practice at that kind of level but actually on the wider level both in terms of time but also in terms of scale as you say, it's perpetuating this issue, which isn't going to get solved unless people have a really strong awareness of all these different things. Like, you know, I'm not saying that everybody should go out and do an MBA and then do a tech startup as well as going to medical school. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous, quite frankly, but there's clearly things that, that we can do, you and I, in, in these positions like this podcast and like other things that, that we're involved in that will help spread that information to get this knowledge of the technology and the, and the systems to these people that are... Um, that are delivering this care. Absolutely, and, and the physicians that I know, and, and you know, we all we all have access to. They they are all trying. They're all working hard. They'd like to learn more, but but I think a, a, a significant portion of the day is involved in tasks that are not problem solving, patient facing, and um, you know we need to be able to address that. And what, one thing that I do that I think helps the physicians I speak with is. Getting, to, getting them to start documenting process, like mm. flows, like re really writing things down so that it can, it can be looked at and articulated and getting them into the mindset of business process re-engineering. Physicians know how to do that. They're just not formally trained. And I think we can help uh, our colleagues with, um, you know, getting them started down that path. And, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't take too long to start making incremental progress. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a good startup in the UK, actually, although I suppose you call them more an SME now called Lumion. Um, CEO is called the founders called Robbie. He he was on one of my previous accelerators, actually, and they do quite a lot of that where where you um, their you know physicians or clinicians will document clinical process and they will then just go and see what they can automate in the background. And they've redesigned um, 
entire processes for, for hospitals and departments and things. Really interesting that, that, that you mentioned that actually. Um, is there a lot of that going on in, in the US? Um, I, I like Lumion and um, they're, they're doing fantastic work. I think they're, um, they're out, they have some footprint here in the US. Oh, I didn't know that you knew. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're um, you know, the, the, the internal mafia business process reengineering folks <laughs> is, is interesting. Um, but I've always, um, one, one of my uh, focuses in my MBA program was, in fact, business process reengineering and um, learned how to, you know, design and build BPNs and all that stuff. That, to me, it would be a very, uh, very easy way to get physicians into the, the, the business thinking side of the equation. Uh, through little boot camps, educational seminars, um, which I think maybe could, you know, we could have, you know, if that, that'd be perhaps another topic for you is, uh, you know, how do you, how do you get the, the physician workforce to engage in some of these quick online uh, little boot camps? Yeah, it's a good point, actually. And because I, what I see from my view of the system coming from the clinician end is that adoption's a huge issue and adoption is a huge issue for so many reasons and of new technology I'm talking about. And one of them is, is being comfortable with it. Um, understanding that it, the, that it works, that it's got evidence behind it and all these different things. But ultimately it's also the understanding of the necessity of it that needs to be communicated in order for those people to take a risk. And that's where I think the business knowledge is really important because when you can see and tangibly understand the benefit of taking a risk to adopt a new technology and you can genuinely appreciate the upside from a, from a financial perspective, and then you can then extrapolate to then think oh, the knock on effects to patients will be this because we can do all these different things. I think that is a really interesting element to it. Yeah, uh, risk mitigation, I think, is uh, another interesting topic. I have a meeting tonight with a bunch of lawyer friends in town here, and they're asking me to help them understand the risk side of, you know, of AI, right? There's, there's, uh, there's risk. There's uh, a, a nebulous space of who said what, where, when. Was it the avatar? Was it you? Where's mm -hmm. it? You know, this is a new, a new space for, for them. And uh, it'd be nice to get it all right and not, and not create a, a, another layer of litigation. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a wide open space for everyone. <laughs> so final question for me then, Vincent. Um, is, the, is the future bright? With everything that you're doing, it seems like it, it, it must look it from your side. You've got loads of different things going on. You're, you're at the cutting edge of um, new technology and quite a lot of process. But you've also seen you've seen the the hype curve of telemedicine in real time right from the very beginning so yeah what we've used the term a lot ai um where do you think we are on the hype curve of ai at the moment and and what do you think the future is for ai in healthcare i think we we owe the uh, the public and the you know the the the, the entities uh, that we have access to to really better articulate what ai is and 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 um, it's, you know, the burden is on us to really agree on how we communicate that to the masses, to, to everyone. And I don't think that's been really worked out well yet. Uh, so that's, that's a work in progress. I'm sure we, we would all like that to be clear, you know, for everyone to really understand. Um, I'm, I'm very bullish on the future. I'm, I'm hyper, hyper excited about the fact that so long as my mind works and, you know, people that are trained like us work into the future, 
that uh, re retired physicians and professionals have something to do when when AI is more ubiquitous. You could you can you can be in your retirement years, still bring value, be involved, and use all that knowledge that you have and actualize it. Um, that that to me is very exciting. We're not we're not really utilizing the retired folks that have all this knowledge and insights on process, on domain, and with the creation of uh, digital agents, et cetera, imagine them all being put to work and bringing value. And that, that could be part of a, a philanthropic effort. It doesn't have to be, it can be whatever they want, but you can be busy, really busy in your later years um, rather than being put, you know, pushed off to the side. So that to me is super exciting. I, th I think that is exciting and I think that's a really nice vision and I can see where your motivation comes from now that your motivation is clearly to strip down all of the well not all but to strip down most of the process bits of being a doctor and actually just leave those core elements and just get as much automated as possible which I think is incredible which as you say then brings into play so many more different people that as you say, you know might be approaching their retirement years or in their retirement years that as you say can still add so much value and um, all that knowledge and experience really isn't it that, that's then just shelved and it's such a, a crying shame when it can be put to such good use um, I think that's an incredibly exciting vision well thank you and, and uh, I've, I've been trying to recruit some of my retired pals and they're 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 willing to you know they're willing to go to work and uh, isn't isn't that nice so of course, that's awesome, that's no, awesome. another topic is uh, reinvigorating the, the workforce um, with you know via AI, so that's that's kind of exciting. Mm. I don't know from when I worked in policy um, at Health Education England, which in the UK looks after all the education and training of the clinical workforce. That yeah, um, retention of the workforce in in clinical practice is of paramount importance and very high up on um, the government's checklist of things to do. Um, but Vincent, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I think I've learned a great deal from you. Um, and just to let you know, the way that we that we finish these podcasts is to hand back over to yourself to just kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, a little about what you do. Um, and we've got listeners in 46 different countries now. So if you've got any asks of our audience, then do feel free to let us know. So over to you to close us out. Sure. And, and thank you. And uh, thanks for the invite. I really appreciated being on your, on your uh, show, James. Um, so again, Vincent Grasso, I'm the uh, global practice lead for IPSoft uh, based here in, uh, in New York City. And we have a private company with a, a very rich uh, environment of AI involving conversational, um, uh, conversational AI via our product Amelia, you know, RPA environments and others. And uh, I'm a practicing physician and software architect, so I get to play on both sides. I'd love to hear from your audience their, their, um, you know, their input and comments on where they see AI really bringing uh, something of value to their, if they're clinicians to their practice, or if they're not clinicians or that we're part of the healthcare uh, delivery team they're in. Uh, do they see um, you know, a, a, a digital assistance being of, of use? Um, you know, any kind of brainstorming that they had, uh, it would be great to hear from them. Perfect. And how can people get in touch with you? Is that, is there an email or a Twitter account? How do you like to be contacted? Yeah, just uh, my, my email, vincent.grasso at ipsoft.com. Uh, we have a, a evolving healthcare website on our, on our ipsoft.com website that's, that's in a 2.0 re relaunch. 
and um, it'd be great to hear from folks and hope to talk to you again, James. Thanks, Vincent. Enjoy the Manhattan sunshine. Thank you. Enjoy. Have a great weekend to all.